Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. It is my great pleasure today to talk to Russ Miles, who is one of the most amazing tech speakers I've ever come across, and I've had the pleasure of watching him speak at many tech conferences and indeed play the guitar. You'll have to listen to the podcast to find out why he plays the guitar when he gives his talk. And a shout out to our sponsor, Simplecast, who make this podcast possible. Russ, it is fabulous to have you here today on the Fireside with Boxing podcast at long last. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Looking forward to this. You are quite a well-known speaker in the technology conference circuit. Do you remember the very first time you spoke at a, a proper conference? Let's say a couple of hundred people. Yes, I do. Well, I have to pre-stage it just a touch because my very first speaking engagement of any sort, really, publicly to strangers, I think is the right phrase, was to do a four-day spring course. And nothing cut my teeth quicker than having to keep a room full of about, I think at the time, about 22 people, keep them interested for four days on a set of topics, some of which I knew very, very well and some of which I didn't. So that was good practice. But my first very large conference, it would have been a spring one. And I remember making what I think is the cardinal sin of all speakers, if they're nervous, is to have a beer before they go on. Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) <laughs> and I went on stage and I did very well. I was very relaxed, apparently. And it was a good talk. But the interesting thing about that one is there was a colleague of mine at the back of the room. And bear in mind, this was my first moment in a place called The Crypt, actually. It used to be attached to Skills Matter in London. Yeah, yeah. And I was in front of a large audience and I was nervous. And I, I went out on a limb with the topic as well because I felt I could talk about industrialization of software. And so I didn't, I didn't go easy on myself. But this particular colleague, so you know when you're looking at an entire room of people if you're an introverted individual like I am, which is not what people often realize, is that I'm really only ever talking to one person. I'm actually, uh, I'm trying to look across the audience and at any given moment in time, I'm talking to whoever I'm looking at and no one else. And um, I do that because the very thought of talking to 200 or plus people would completely and utterly block me. So um, at that particular moment, I was talking to my colleague at the back of the room. Now, he only would admit that he has what he calls a, a good face for radio. <laughs> His natural expression is of confused disdain. And it meant that I was, I was just looking at this, this gent and going, I must be sucking. This must be so bad. And so I got through it and I got off stage and I almost ran to the back of the room to my colleague there. And as soon as I got near him, I said, so, so what did I do wrong? And he turned around and he said, no, oh, I thought it was really good. <laughs> if your face could just have said that just a little bit i know but that's sometimes the thing that happens at technology conferences i find sometimes if the audience is really interested in the topic they're almost deadly silent and yeah yes. sitting there with, with almost frowns on their faces because they're trying to understand and 
you're going, oh God, there's no audience reaction here at all. Yes, I've had that in two cases. I've had the two extremes. I'm sure you have as well, Richard. I had the extreme, I think it was Norway. No, maybe it was Sweden. But I, I was told that the audience, it, don't expect them to interact with you. And so I didn't. And I had a very you know, one-way talk that was much more of a presentation than I usually do. I usually try and get a bit of banter going on with the audience. But this time I didn't. And it was absolutely correct. I mean, they were lovely, lovely people. I had long conversations with them afterwards. But during the talk, they are literally just staring at you and absorbing. And it is very off-putting to have that. But the worst, actually, for me, mm. I think this is because I'm British. The worst one for me is I did a talk at the Cloud Foundry Summit. I think that was it, over in San Francisco. And about five minutes before I did it, I was told it was back down from 45 minutes to 15 minutes. What? Yeah. But I had an 11-hour flight there, 11-hour flight back, for roughly 15 minutes of talking, which was fun. You know, I can't complain. The glamorous life of the international conference speaker. <laughs> Something like that. So I abandoned my complete slide deck because that was no use anymore. I knew I could tell a couple of stories in that time. But what completely knocked me sideways was that there's so much enthusiasm in an, in an American audience, so much obvious, you know, unrestricted love for what's going to happen. And the entire room of three and a half thousand, four thousand people started whooping and clapping. And it was like I was walking out as a celebrity, you know, like a baseball player or wow. something. Wow. And, and that was really off-putting to me because all I could do was the first thing that any British person would do in that moment is their first phrase would be, well, this can only go downhill. <laughs> and that was it. I started with that. It went very well, I think, because the whooping continued at the end. But that was almost as hard for me to judge as the stone-cold stares of the lovely people in Sweden. And let's go back to what you said at the start. Uh, you, you gave this training course, which, which you would say is your first kind of big experience of professional public speaking. Mm. And I've given training courses and they're bloody hard. I mean, I, I would much rather give a 50-minute conference talk than half-day training course. I just find them much more intense because you have the small audience who's that can get you <laughs> right there and then. There's nowhere to yes. hide. There's always going to be one or two people who know more than you. Yes. <laughs> so there's a trick I use. Not really a trick. It's a genuine offering to the audience. So I know that in any given audience, there's bound to be people who know more than me about a given topic. Yeah. I do talks at the moment on chaos engineering. And there are people in the world that know more about chaos engineering than I. But what they don't have is my stories. So... They are my safety net. They are probably what keeps it interesting for four days is that I don't rely just on the content and the facts. I try and bring my stories because no one knows those like I do. So even on that very first time when I had to deliver a course for four days, I realized I couldn't just go, all right, slide three says blah, 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 blah. I had to figure out a narrative for those 30 or 40 Slides. And how did you know to do that? Well, was that just something that occurred to you? No, I was trained. Okay. Bizarrely enough, I've had a couple of big influences training-wise when it comes to public speaking, or in fact, what I call it is storytelling. The first major influence that was obvious to me anyway was Cathy uh, Sierra and Bert Bates. Oh, yes, yes. On the Head yes. First series. Yeah, I, I went to a three-day boot camp in writing for the Head First series with Kathy and Burr and a few other potential authors and a few editors from O'Reilly. And we learned how Kathy thinks about this particular topic. She's wonderful. She's amazing. And it's all about that. If you consider how the audience feels, then you, you end up with narratives and stories because if you put yourself in that audience, you would fall asleep after two or three slides of facts. And the majority of the actual content, people could look it up somewhere. They could find it. 
what they can't find is the narrative. So that was learning how to write head first books was a really big uh, leg up for me. In fact, my favorite part of that course, one thing I always remember now, but I'm going to have to paraphrase it slightly. So apologies if Kathy ever hears this, because I'm sure I'm getting it slightly wrong. But the idea was that the brain has a crap filter. Okay. That's what she said. Okay. So your brain has a crap filter. Your mind is totally switched on and wants to learn everything it's hearing. And it's, it's sitting there in that room. It's listening to you and it's going, I really need to know this. But unfortunately, the mind doesn't learn. The brain does. And the brain is sitting there asking only a few questions. Number one question, am I going to get eaten if I don't know this? <laughs> well, probably not. <laughs> am I going to eat if I know this? Also, an, a difficult connection to make in a tech talk. The last one is the worst of all, which is the brain doesn't care unless it's going to procreate. And that's a very mm. difficult one to sell. <laughs> but the brain is wonderfully stupid on one particular count. And that is, as soon as you tell a story, the brain can't help but be in the story. So you tell a story about somebody, if it's a confessional, you can say, I did it. And what happens is everyone in that room, their brains subsume themselves into the hero or the villain of the tale, depending on who the subject is. And so you can lock the learning part of people's brains in if you tell stories. If you don't tell a story, the brain is not interested. And that's been extremely valuable advice throughout everything I've done since. If one is giving a technical conference talk, you should try to weave at least one personal story into it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I usually start with several and sometimes they occur to me in the middle of the talk. And we're not all at that level, Russell. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no. And that's entirely fair, but it's, it's actually a, a little tip I try to give people is, yeah. is listen to yourself when you're doing a talk and try to not just find the stories, but if there's something that you find that makes you smile or makes you recall something, sometimes just go with it. It's a bit of a risk, but you can easily drop these anecdotes in. And that's the gold. That's the thing that you, you know, no one can find anywhere else. And so a lot of my talks, they develop over time. I'm fortunate now that I actually do get a chance to do a talk more than once, as opposed to in the early days of my career, which was pretty much do one and then your next one's got to be different. Otherwise, yeah. everyone, it'll be the same crowd again. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about that topic? Let's just zero on that one for a moment, because if you speak at a lot of conferences, you do tend to develop a talk that you might run for three months on a particular topic, which, you know, when I do this, I feel it gets better every time. Do you do that? And some conferences don't really like it. No, they don't. Everyone wants unique content. Yeah. They want to, everyone wants to be special. So this was interesting. This is actually my second major influence is Damien Conway, who okay. taught me, he did a one day course. If anyone gets a chance to see Damien Conway and to get him to teach you how to do presentations, the gentleman is an absolute legend. And like me, he's quite introverted, but I would say he's very introverted as opposed to me where I'm vaguely introverted. So he really does have to overcome an awful lot of challenges to be on stage. And the way he does it is through practice. So back to your point here of doing a talk more than once and getting better at it, he would probably completely understand that. And he treats his talks as a major performance. So for a given 45-minute talk, and that's just a normal track talk, he will have probably prepared and practiced for about 100 hours. So that's wow. on the extreme end. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, it's amazing what he does. And then for a keynote, he, it can be anything up to 500 hours of effort. When you see his name, go. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And to be fair to him, I think that's his major income is from speaking. So yeah. he, he knows his stuff. I'm, now, I'm not in that league. And I actually have a different challenge <laughs> in the first time I do a talk is usually quite good. The second time I do a talk, it's much better. 
the flow is there, the stories are there, I'm ready to rock. Mm. I have a problem with talk number three okay. in that I'm usually starting to get bored of the subject and it mm. becomes obvious. Is that the reason for the guitar? <laughs> that could be. We have to come on to the guitar. <laughs> I'll get to the guitar in just a moment, but I mean, that, that's why I just point out I never do talk three in front of anyone. I've learned talk three happens in a hotel room somewhere on my own because weirdly enough, even just doing it to no one, Talk four, talk five, they, they get better and better again. So it's weird. Okay, that's an interesting little tactic. Mm. Do you literally just prance around the hotel room for 45 minutes giving the talk? Yeah. Wow, okay. Damien uses a technique where he actually puts an audience on his laptop that he can see and talk to. But I'm not really fearful of audiences. I like the flow. I love being on stage when I've got a flow going on. And talk three doesn't have a flow. It's broken. I start to get bored of my own stories. It, it's a weird one. And then talk four, I come back to it. I usually find something else I find interesting. And the innovation kicks in again. Yeah. And it becomes interesting again. But I, I guess the general lesson here is that everyone is going to be slightly different on this count. And you have to kind of figure out for yourself, where is your sweet spot to make something interesting? Some people do three or four sessions of practicing a talk because they know their first ones will suck and then they'll be better at you know five or six. Yeah, it varies. it's about knowing yourself as a speaker. And I think, I mean, it, it's not necessarily the case that this applies to everybody, this third talk syndrome. No, I, I don't think I could generally think that. <laughs> but knowing what your particular weaknesses are as a speaker is definitely worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think at times I've been so busy, I've ended up giving talks with very little preparation. And because you end up being able to sort of wing it, I have the opposite problem that your friend Mr. Conway has in that I underprepare. Uh, um, and then you're on stage going, oh, bloody hell. Yeah, yeah. I deserve this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it hurts more. There's no doubt about it. I find it quite hard to be underprepared in that I've noticed I can go on stage without any preparation and I will come up with narratives and stories to tell anyway. But that is fairly unique, I think. It's interesting to know why we all hate public speaking because Damien Conway talks about that really well too. He talks about the fact that if you were to take an ape and essentially, depending on your, your systems, we are probably related to apes. And if you take an ape and remove it from the group and get the group to stare at it and then the group to bare their teeth and worst of all, clap their hands together, that ape is going to die. Every evolutionary clue at that point yeah. is saying you're dying. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons we hate stages. That's one of the reasons yeah. we're nervous before we even go out. We're isolated from the group. It's very unnatural. Isn't it the case that as humans, let's get sort of philosophical or biological at the moment. I mean, there's no other animal really that can really operate in this way where you can get thousands of them together in a confined space, all focused in a calm way on one other person or object. I mean, obviously you have swarms of wildebeest and that sort of stuff. Generally, no, one person isn't, one wildebeest isn't trying to fight for their attention. No, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you put a thousand apes in a room... It would be pandemonium. And if it wasn't pandemonium, if one of them was isolated from the group, then like I say, that, that one's going to die. Yeah. So it's completely unnatural what we're doing. It's completely against our genetics. Oh yeah. Everything in our mind is screaming you're in a life-threatening situation because all the signals are there to tell you that. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the guitar. Now, I remember, let's <laughs> let's do the personal story. <laughs> I remember speaking at a microservices conference in Berlin a couple of years back. Ah, yeah, yeah. I saw you were on the schedule. I was like, great, this will be a treat. Russ is always good. And then you woke up, rock up, should I say, with the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and you sing the entire talk. And I believe your slides were going, were automated. So you had to keep up with yes, them. Yes, that's right. I didn't know where to start. I mean, it was awesome, but I don't know where to start. Deconstruct this whole guitar thing. 
so I can tell you where it came from. Um, I was going to do a talk in London and I was very nervous about doing this talk because I was going to ask someone to marry me at the end of the talk. So there was an element of nerves involved. Oh, okay. That's a complicated story, but I won't go there. But the preparation for this talk was, I got it all together slide-wise. I felt that that was reasonable, um, but I was still really nervous. And this was two days before. And so I know my nerves are something that I have to work with. Um, that's something I've learned many, many years. And you have to be very careful of using any sort of dodgy mechanisms like drinking too much or anything like that to handle nerves because it, it, it works massively against you. So I was sitting there at home and I thought, well, how do I normally relax? Oh yeah, I get, I get the guitar out and I play. Yeah. So I started playing and I thought, do you know what? I played an ACDC song and I thought, do you know what? I could, I could use this. And I was having lyrics in my head to how I could play that song and it would be relevant to microservices. And that's where the, uh, which one was it? The highway to, to microservices hell came from. And I thought, you know what, <laughs> yeah. the, to relax me in, before I do that particular talk in London at the QET center. So to about four or 500 people, um, do you know what? I'll do that. I'll play the guitar then too. That'll make it easy. With a little word to the wise, it didn't. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's technically difficult. Yeah, it is. It's a bit of a nightmare. So I use a very simple technique. I use slides for the video and I literally listen to the song whilst changing slides at the appropriate moments. And I record that screen and that's what I play up on the screen and, and all the music comes out of the laptop. So it's all very synced up nicely for me. Yeah. So I have very few technical requirements. That's, that's a key thing. But yeah, it's, it doesn't help you with nerves for sure. And then to make it matters worse, that morning that I was doing that for the first time, my laptop actually did the Mac equivalent of a blue screen of death oh. on me. I managed to get it back. I couldn't let it go to sleep without danger of that coming back. So I actually had a, to nursemaid this laptop all morning whilst I was so nervous of this talk. But, but it went down well. It I did. Mean, it was fabulous. Yeah. For it. You know, yeah. I, I actually have people ask. I get two, two things at the moment. I either get disappointment if I don't bring the guitar, <laughs> which has happened today. Actually, someone said, you brought the guitar. I was like, no, I'm doing five talks this week. I'm doing a talk every single day. I don't, you know, the guitar's not with me this week. I've only got hand luggage. But yeah, there, there's people that want it. And then I've had a, one occasion where I was asked explicitly not to bring it. Maybe people must hate you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so again, it depends. I think the pros, they kind of like it. So when you go to a big venue... It's almost like a little challenge, something yeah. different. And they've got a proper AV setup. They know their kit. They know their world. It's when you turn up and you're doing the evening meetups where typically someone has got maybe a microphone, if you're lucky, and you turn up with this guitar and you can just see their faces go, oh, no, not me. And I, yeah. I totally understand it. I would be the same. We're software developers, so let's generalize. Okay. So this is a prop that you use mm. in your talks. And it's, it's one that you can use because you can play rock music on a guitar and that sort of stuff. Would you recommend props in general? Oh, that's a good one. With one massive caveat, they have to be on topic, massively on topic. I've seen props fail miserably. So I saw a talk a few years back where someone was talking about how to investigate system problems and they decided to dress up as Sherlock Holmes and <laughs> it worked for about five minutes and then people were just distracted. It wasn't just that they were dressed, they were trying to act like the character oh, right. and it became hugely distracting from what they were trying to say, which is why I box it. Usually a, a shortish song, maybe four or five minutes at the beginning, and then I kind of put it down and then I move on to the talk itself proper, usually. Yeah. Anything longer than that, it's a bit gratuitous and it's probably distracting. 
I considered once doing Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, which is something I can play. And I was going to do that. But then I thought that it's very gratuitous to do the full length version of the song yeah. at the beginning of a 40 minute talk. You're asking for trouble. <laughs> I, I probably would be. But yeah. I, mean, I had a great story worked out for how it relates to the topic. But never mind. It's either absolutely core to the topic, in which case you can do it throughout. Or like in my case, it's a wake up call. It's kind of a, we're here, there's a topic. Usually, what people don't always notice is that if I do do um, one of these songs at the beginning on the guitar, it's usually about the problem I'm going to address rather than the solution. So the highway to microservices hell was talking about quite literally how big a mess you can get in by trying to achieve what some people label as microservices. And that made it fun, but it also set the stage for what my talk is about avoiding some of that stuff. Yeah. And it's the same top each time. I mean, I, I, there's a few songs I do now. I do a few from The Who. I do a lot of ACDC just because they're easy and fun. Um, but every time it's worked, it's been telling you the problem and then I give you the solution. So again, I'm appealing to the brain. Uh, the brain likes the music. It likes the fact that something different is happening and it's kind of listening to the problem. At least I hope it is. So that seems to work. And people remember the songs and they even remember the topic the song was about, the fact it was a, it was a problem um, statement rather than a solution statement. And um, yeah, that's, that's my techniques to make it relevant. I would, have I ever tried to use a prop that just doesn't work? That's an interesting idea. I think I've been tempted to. I've been tempted to go out with a prop. I mean, for example, I, I quite like Bertrand Russell, the philosopher. Yeah. I was doing a talk in, I think it was Lithuania, where I found out that someone had like one of those old library armchairs and I thought, you know what, I'll sit on the stage, I'll have like a smoking jacket, probably look a little bit Noel Coward as opposed to Bertrand Russell, but I was going to give it a go. And then I realized that none of that was relevant to the topic whatsoever. And it would just be complete distraction. Yeah. You also have a Harley Davidson. Yes, I do. Have you ever been tempted to use that as a prop? I have used it as a prop. Have you? Oh, what? I have. <laughs> I did once uh, use it as a prop. It wasn't my Harley that I used, unfortunately. Okay. So I rode a motorcycle across the United States, six and a half thousand miles doing I think approximately 15 talks across about two weeks two and a half weeks so I did a talk almost at every major city that you can imagine across the states ending up in Chicago and the talk that was happening there I I got permission to ride the bike in but in the last minute they decided I couldn't ride it in I could only ride it to the door which was disappointing wow. but yeah. the bike was part of the story there it was you know I finally got here on the, this chaos engineering talk tour across the states and the bike is part of it and i was very pleased because i also got to use that bike with a gentleman called joe armstrong who created um erlang one of the creators of erlang who was sadly passed away yeah that's right go and read his paper on oh, yeah. erlang it's amazing what's the title of it i forget what it is now but it's a fantastic the original erlang paper is fantastic read we'll put it in the show notes yeah absolutely because i mean the guy was not only a genius but he was also one of the nicest down-to-earth people you could possibly have just huge enthusiasm for everything that's going on and also enthusiasm for how mad we all are when we're doing this we the way we reinvent the same thing over and over plenty of times so he was it it was fabulous and this was probably my first proper time i ever met him and i was introduced as the wally really that had ridden across the states far too far and done talks everywhere and would he mind sitting on the back of the bike (laughs) <laughs> and, and let me d- deliver him to his keynote. And so we did that. And it was, it was such fun. Such fun. Oh, brilliant. 
You mentioned it a few times, and I, I think it's the subject of uh, your new business. And it's just a fascinating expression, chaos engineering. <laughs> now, yes. you're not allowed to do a product pitch. Oh, no, I won't. But give us a 90-second explanation of the fundamental idea. Okay, so I'm going to have to be very quick. Number one, chaos engineering is a terrible term. We should stop naming things. We're really bad at it, bad at it in this industry. If we're not engineering chaos. We're trying to engineer ourselves out of chaos. We build complex systems. How do we gain trust and confidence in them and their reliability? Uh, we can't prove they work, but what we can do is use proactive techniques to surface evidence of system weaknesses. That is chaos engineering. Fantastic. You've done this before, haven't you? <laughs> A couple of times. <laughs> is your current talk cycle on chaos? And Yes, it is. I use Kinevin as an illustrative force, really. I have to admit, I'm no expert on Kinevin, but I, I do use it as an illustration of the fact we have to create complex systems. We don't have really a choice in this. The days of simple systems are having left behind um, with our Hello World explorations at college. Most modern production systems essentially are complex. And when you consider the management and monitoring around those systems to keep them running. It's, I think they are, there is a, a paper out there. I cannot remember the name of the author. I'm very bad at that. But there's, it's stated that f you need five times the complexity in order to help something run and look after it. Um, yeah. So whatever you're building, magnify it by another five times, and that's what you've got to look after it. So yeah. we, we can't avoid complexity. So this, this whole stint of mine at the moment is about how to get people to realize it's essential and that this is a proactive technique that everyone can apply to help build trust and confidence in their systems. And that's, that's the key message really is that, you know, setting aside all the tooling and stuff that I obviously I have a vested interest in, in promoting yeah. the actual technique is the, the phrase I use is when you're working with complex systems, there are no best practices. This is something that can ever teach us. It says, if you're in a chaotic area or a, comp or a complex area, and even a complicated system, there are no best practices. At best, you might have good practices, but you probably don't even have those when you get into the complex area. You kind of have to feel your way. Chaos engineering is a realization that you can explore these systems and learn from them and see how they react to turbulent conditions. Um, Weirdly enough, that makes chaos engineering itself an exception to the rule. For me, it's probably a best practice um, if you're working with complex systems. It's something that, it, you know, in a context-insensitive way, I can tell you that you will gain by applying at least the mindset of chaos engineering. And that's quite exciting. It's almost a Bertrand Russell-style paradox, isn't it? It is, and I like those. Uh, <laughs> we'll end with one final question or topic. The dreaded vendor pitch. <laughs> so at the moment, you are in a position which a lot of people professionally may find themselves in, which is you've developed the skill of speaking at conferences. You can submit proposals or get invited. You know you're going to get your time on stage pretty much. Maybe not every conference, but certainly most of them. But you're now doing a startup and you have a product to sell. And it doesn't make sense to spend money attending a conference at time, more importantly, without getting some sort of promotional value out of it. So how do you merge those two opposing forces? How do you give your audience value, not annoy the organizer, and yet pitch your product? I think it's actually a really easy answer, I hope. Um, it's certainly a simple one. So the way I look at it is that, number one, you've got to believe in the product actually solving something. Okay. If it doesn't solve something, then I couldn't even... You know, the best sales in the world is going to struggle. It has to solve something real for people. I'm fortunate, as far as I'm concerned. Chaos engineering as a discipline solves something. My tooling is free and open source. 
it solves something where anyone could go ahead and start doing it. Yes, there's commercial variants around that, but the key message for me is I can still say the same things I've always been saying, and I don't have to tell anyone to use our tools. What I can do is say, here's a challenge, here's an approach that helps with that challenge, pick your own way of making this work for you. And, you know, yeah, at the end I'll say, or even sometimes at the beginning I'll say, I created this chaos toolkit, right? So that's as far as the pitch goes. You know, that's my bias over with. Now let's talk about the real challenges. And I think in this industry in particular, we can all see a fender pitch coming miles away. And it helps to go out with, okay, there's a story here that is important to you. You're going to gain something from having the story. You might choose to go with our tooling, but ultimately it's the story that matters. Now, I'm quite fortunate I don't do big vendor conferences or anything like that where the answer is the tool, what's the question? Instead, I always start with what's interesting in the discipline that's going to solve people's problems. And then it's almost an aside to say, look, if you like what you hear from me, if you trust what you hear from me, then there's this other stuff that you can go and look at. And it's entirely up to you whether you go there or not. And I find myself being able to tread that fine line of vendor pitch or not vendor pitch that way. Yeah, you're coming from a position of authenticity, or at least it's genuine in terms of the communication that you're giving. And you are trying to find value for the other side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would find it, and I have found it, I won't give specific examples, but I have found it very difficult to give a talk, which is trying to, for want of a better phrase, kind of sell people on an idea when they don't have the problem. Or if the problem is, as you say, inauthentic, it does two things. It undermines me, which is really painful. It undermines my relationship with the audience, which is one based on trust. They're there because they hope I'm going to be saying something helpful for them. And they shouldn't be worried that I'm going to pitch at them. And also, you know, particularly if you know it's a dubious link to the value that people might want, then that's almost the perfect storm. And I think only a couple of times in my career have I found myself in that moment of going, do you know what? I'm trying to convince people of the problem because either they don't have it yet or they may never have it. You know, a phrase I use is that you've got to be very wary of being the snake oil salesman and you can feel it before anyone else. So do your best to avoid it because it will only undermine you as a public speaker or you know, call it whatever you will. But a person of trusted authenticity and authority, that should be the baseline for every talk you give. And that is a fantastic point to end on. Thank you so much, Russ. It's been a real pleasure having you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Richard. Catch you again on the road sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with Vox Gig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgeek.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgeek.com slash speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. 
If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at boxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward. Step forward.